work this past week uh, to see VBS and all the energy and time that went into it. That was so encouraging. I did see some that were still sitting there that were not up here for that song. I just wanted to point that out. There were some, I don't know, maybe they were shy. I don't know, but that was good to see all that energy. Imagine doing that energy when it was like 90 degrees in here or so. Uh, It took a lot. So it was encouraging to see that um, this past week. This summer, we have been working through in our sermon series through the book of Philippians. And uh, we finished up through chapter 1 last week, this week, we go into chapter 2, and it's a very familiar passage. And sometimes that's one of the more difficult things to do, is to be able to speak to a familiar passage. Many of you are already familiar with this. Uh, 2, 1 through 11 is a very common passage. We've all probably read it before and have, have learned much from it before. We've heard devotional sermons. Uh, but it's one of those things as well that sometimes being too familiar with it can be dangerous as well. Uh, because we, we, we pass by a familiar Bible verse. Oh, yeah, I read that before. Oh, yeah, I memorized that when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. But you know what? God's word is such and so deep that these truths that he has for us are for us here today. And what maybe didn't mean anything for us yesterday, it might be for us here today. So we need to listen. Each time we approach God's word, there's something there that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. As I said, we've completed... Uh, chapter 1, and and Paul's theme throughout this is the spread of the gospel. If you read the whole book of Philippians as a whole, and I encourage you to do that, do it nonstop so you get a a picture of the whole letter, you get an idea that his whole passion is for the spread of the gospel. That's what he's about. So he writes this letter to this church plant in Philippi, these young believers, and he's writing it from prison. It's kind of like one of those, you know, we send out support letters and then thank you letters or whatever, missions trips, and and we'd like to explain how things are going on and and ask for prayer for certain things. And you would expect, if somebody's locked up, they're going to be asking for prayer. Can you please pray that God would release me soon? Uh, Can you please pray that that, that my circumstances would be better, that my food would be warm tomorrow instead of cold, or things like that? But he doesn't do that. This is Paul's example for us. If you notice in chapter, in fact, we we covered this before in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it kind of sums up his exhortation and his encouragement throughout the letter because here he is, instead of asking for prayer, he's saying, you you folks in, in, in Philippi, I'm praying for you. And this is what he says in verses 9 through 11, it is my prayer that your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's his prayer for the church plant there in Philippi. And by the Holy Spirit's prompting, Paul is passionate He's passionate about the spiritual lives of the people in this new church, how they can be spreading the good news to other people. And as you read the letters he wrote to all the other church plants, he he started a church in Galatia, Uh, he wrote a letter to the church in uh, Ephesus, Corinth, and all of those. He has much to say about one of the topics we're going to speak about today, about what it takes to make the spread of the gospel effective. So if you're open, already have your Bibles open, be looking at Philippians chapter 2 and looking at verses 1 through 11. Now suppose I were 
today to include in your bulletin a blank piece of paper. I didn't do this, so don't go digging through your bulletin and try to find it. But in your bulletins, let's say it was a blank piece of paper. Now, I want you to do this little exercise. I want you to number one through ten, the top ten. And I want you to think about, hmm, who is it that I would consider, whether it be somebody I know or a celebrity, the top ten egotistical, proud divas, divo, I don't know what we call them, divos, or whoever it is, self-centered people that I can possibly think of and come up with a list of your top ten. Some of you are thinking, um, can I have a second piece of paper? Yeah. Only ten? And others of you are looking and saying, your neighbor, wait a minute, what, what's my name on there for? But very few of us would include our own name on there, would we? Because that's one of those things that we don't necessarily recognize in ourselves. Pride is usually so evident to the people around us, but something that we're blind to ourselves. Paul was passionate about the spread of the gospel, and he recognized that human pride affects the spread of the gospel that he's so passionate about. So he wrote something about it. We're going to find in these few verses... In addition to persecution, in addition to false teachers, in addition to lack of funding, there is something else that is a significant hindrance to the spread of the gospel. We need to begin at the beginning, as Paul builds his case in chapter 1, verse 1. This is entitled, this heading is, The Spread of the Gospel. First, it's based on relationship, verse 1. Spread of the gospel based on relationship. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. This word so links it to the previous two verses. You know that Paul didn't sit there and write his letter and number verses and put chapter numbers numbers in there. He just carried from one paragraph to the next. So this links it to the previous verse. uh, to the previous verses, verses 29 and 30. Listen to this. For it has been granted to you, you you people at Philippi, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I noticed two words that popped out in those few verses, and those are suffer and conflict. Typically, we would think negative. This is terrible. But then he jumps right away in verse 1 of the next chapter and says, So if there is any encouragement. What? What does that have to do with suffering and conflict? This is such a positive letter from Paul. He's commending, commending the Philippian church and helping them to gain God's perspective on the current events around them. Suffering and conflict seem so negative, but God is poised to use them in our lives for growth opportunities. We don't call them that. We call it suffering and conflict. And God sees it as growth opportunities for us. And the word if, he says, if there is any encouragement, can also be read since. And these are very positive words. Look at these in verse 1. These are very positive words. Encouragement, which is kind of like the word consolation. And it's in Christ. The encouragement is in Christ. It's, in fact, it's the very same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, when he lists the gift of the Spirit. That's one of them. Encouragement. If there is any comfort or any affection, and he uses the word agape, 
which is a word for love, and he's talking about God's love for us. Since there's that love for us, since there is participation in the Spirit, and that word, again, its word is uh, fellowship, familiar perhaps to some of us, koinonia. That's where that word is right there. So that fellowship in the Spirit, all, since all these attributes are present, this means that Paul is addressing this letter to believers, those who have this relationship in Christ. Very first, most significant thing about the spread of the gospel, it's based on relationship. Nothing that we should take for granted. That relationship with Christ is of utmost importance. It comes first. The rest of the passage you just ignore if that isn't in place. And too often we do. We just take that for granted. You mean relationship in Christ? Oh, you mean like going to church, doing the church thing, right? No. That might be part of it. But it means something that happened inside of us. Where we're confronted with two realities. We're confronted with our own hideous sin. We realize that and we, come and we realize that there is a God who is there who loves us so much. There is a holy and pure God loves us so much. He sent his son to die in our place to take the punishment for the sin that we, where we should be punished. For all the sin that we've done. And recognizing those two. See, some people will recognize those two. Some people will even acknowledge that there was a historical Jesus. Yes, I believe he walked on the earth. I believe he lived. But then there needs to be something else. There needs to be a step that says, oh, you mean that's for me. And in order to talk about the rest of the passage, that has to be in place first. That relationship where you come to that point and say, okay, I get it. And not only do I get it, but I'm going to take this very risky step and say, I'm going to stop trusting in everything that I think I ought to be doing to be a Christian and place it on Jesus. That's coming to faith in Christ. That's the very first step. That's the most significant thing in order to understand the rest of the passage is the spread of the gospel. It's based on relationship. The one spreading the good news has a personal relationship with God through Christ. And that relationship is available to all who hear and respond. Not only is it based on relationship, verse 1, it also, the spread of the gospel, is revealed in unity. Verse 2. Revealed in unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. You see that little word pop up, joy? This is now the third time in this short letter that Paul has used that word, and he's going to use it again. It becomes a theme of the book of Philippians. Joy. Make my joy complete. Since your relationship with God is tight, it's secure, then... Let it be revealed in your corporate relationships. It, it's almost as though Paul is enjoying writing this letter. Some of the other letters he wrote were, were kind of, in some cases, rebuke or correction. Uh, but he was enjoying writing this letter. As we find out through the thread that goes throughout the whole letter uh, is, is the thread of joy. Look closely at the verse again and notice the verbs there. Being, having, and again, being. See that? It implies a state of being, not an occasional event. It's a pattern. This unity is to be a part of who we are. And the unity is in Christ and comes about through the work of God's Spirit. See, some people hear the word unity and they think, oh yeah, I like it when other people think the way I think. That's unity. <laughs> no, that's not unity. That's just wanting other people to go your way. 
That's not unity. This unity is in Christ, and it comes about through the work of God's Spirit. It's a common relationship with the same indwelling Holy Spirit. That's a comforting thought, to think of your brothers and sisters have that same Holy Spirit indwelling them as well. One of the effects should be unanimity in the work of the church, working towards the same goals. But in essence, what it boils down to is that same Holy Spirit indwelling each one of us. That's what Paul is writing about here. Notice a word that's repeated. We're, we're pointing out some of, the, some of the obvious things here, and, and it's a good thing to do when you study Scripture. Just don't gloss over something like this. But there's a word that's repeated there, and that is the word mind. It's important to note something like this. Being like-minded means more than just having similar thoughts. It means having a mindset, a similar pattern of thinking. It is this. The unconscious way we process and act on data based on human nature and our environment. That's mindset. Unconscious way we process and act on data based on human nature and our environment. That word mind, uh, Paul, uh, yeah, Paul uses it again in chapter 3, verse 19. He uses it to describe unbelievers who are consumed with early think, uh, earthly things, meaning those who have a mindset toward earthly things. This unity is in Christ is the result of intentionality on our part because we control what our minds feed on. Paul is telling the Philippian believers that true unity comes about from choosing to develop a godly mindset, filling our minds with truth and making that a regular part of our diet. As we get older, at least some of my friends have told me this, um, we, we kind of pay attention more to, to our diet, to what we eat, or more accurately, what we shouldn't eat. When we were younger, we didn't. And now, we wish we had, because now we feel the effects of it. The diet is, is important. If our mental diet consists of input that is not spiritually healthy, it will show up in a number of ways, including how we relate to our brothers and sisters, failing to be of one mind with our brothers and sisters. It's not just about changing our actions. It's not about making a list of rules. Follow these rules and everything will be fine. It's about understanding God's righteousness and holiness in such a way that it affects my daily living. Did you get that? The Christian life is not about those lists of rules that we like to draw up. It is about understanding God's righteousness and His holiness in such a way that it affects how I live my daily life. Paul also writes to the Romans in chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, about being transformed by the renewal of the mind. Continual process, it's carried out by someone else. And see, these patterns of thinking over time, they develop into beliefs. Beliefs drive our motives, our words, and our actions. You see how important it is to have a godly mindset. So the spread of the gospel is of utmost concern to Paul. He recognizes the significance of a right relationship with God through Christ and the necessity of unity within the body of Christ. But there's an elephant in the room. You know the expression, American expression that we have, there's an elephant in the room, something big, hairy, and smelly, and such a big monstrosity. It's always present. Everybody knows what it is, but no one talks about it. 
We're about to address it in the next verse. First, it was, verse 1, based on relationship. Verse 2, revealed in unity. 3, verses 3 and 4, the spread of the gospel is motivated by humility. It's motivated by humility. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, second and third imperatives in these verses. The first imperative, the direct command was make my joy complete. Then it says, don't do this, but do this. Don't do things from rivalry and conceit, but count others more significant than yourselves. In verse 2, Paul expresses what he desires of the Philippian believers. In verses 3 and 4, he tells them how. And this, these two verses, this is the premise of his passage in verses 1 through 11. This is the core of it. Right here is where it is. It's the other's first mentality. And the only way to do away with, to do, the only way to do this is to confront head on the elephant in the room. Our own self-absorbed, prideful ego. We don't like to talk about that. We would much rather talk about others. But it has to be dealt with because, again, Paul's passion, the spread of the gospel, and this affects it. And to put it, and to, put it to the side, it's an active, deliberate choice. It's motivated by God himself. It's not as a way to please others. It's carried out on a consistent basis so that it becomes a pattern for our lives. Those are tall orders. Most of us can come up with a humble act now and then, and then we almost break our arm patting ourselves on the back for it. Paul is writing about a pattern. So much of our own sinful behavior, our thoughts, our attitudes, our motives, our words, our actions, can be traced to the sin of pride. We usually associate pride with loud boasting, but it reveals itself in other ways too. Cutting remarks masked as humor withdrawing emotionally from a loved one, insisting on our own way or trying to control our own little world, or feeling slighted over every little offense that has its roots in pride. Earlier this summer, I went out to our car. The car was parked out front on the street and I noticed a flyer on the windshield, common thing. Pulled it off and looked at it and says, We buy junk cars. And the word junk was in big letters on there. I looked at my car and I said, what, 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 what are they doing? What's it? I mean, okay, so it's 12 years old. I'm over it now. It's okay. But see, we get these little offenses, these little things that get us. That's, that is also pride. And here, Paul says to do nothing from rivalry or conceit. The word for rivalry is also found in chapter 1, verse 17. It has to do with selfish ambition, contentiousness, full of strife. We would say a combative personality. When our ego is prominent, it affects our relationships so that we're always competing. Now, you've got to think for a minute. Okay, this is how letters were read at that time. It was kind of like, a, I'm trying to, using my imagination, okay? Um, you know how a first showing is sometimes, first showing of a popular movies at midnight? 
I kind of picture this this way because here it was a letter from Paul, the guy who came and started this church. Everybody knew about him. And they didn't just run off copies, of course. And he didn't post it on his Facebook page. The only way to do it was for everybody to come together so that the letter could be read. And so here they are reading through this letter, positive reinforcement, encouragement, and then you get to this point that says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And there are people there in that church. I don't know if that happened in this church or not, but looking around at them, those people, yeah, that's, that's, that's who he's writing about. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Our actions should not be the result of these sinful motives, but rather humil- uh, humility. Motives are important. We are masters at attempting to mask motives. Reveals a lack of integrity, quite frankly. It's a form of deceit. We may be able to fool all those around us to an extent and for a time, but we can't fool God. He knows our motives even when they're not even clear in our own minds. So easy to say and to do the right thing at the right way for the right time, but for the wrong reason. When even our motives are surrendered to God, then we begin to practice the humility that Paul is writing about. See, we're all good about this doing this humility thing, as long as other people notice. Wait, doesn't that kind of cancel out what God wants us to do with humility? But we do that. And and humility, quite frankly, works fine in a vacuum. Go off be a hermit somewhere. Humility comes into action when there's people around us. And we're to consider, it means to count or regard others as more important. Not to judge. It's not up to us to determine who we consider more important than ourselves. See, our mechanism for doing this is skewed by our own sin nature. Paul says everyone. He actually makes it easier. It's not, the same, it's not saying that you're believing you're of no value. That's not what he's saying. It's not demeaning. It's not putting self down. It's putting self aside. Very different. And the word consider means to esteem. It's the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 regarding the elders. He says, esteem them very highly, hold them in the highest regard. So we're to esteem one another in that way. Paul is so enthused about the spread of the gospel, but he's pointing out to his brothers and sisters that it's necessary to not just talk about the elephant in the room, but actually do something about it. So verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul continues and expands upon the initial command of verse 3. Don't be selfish. Put others first. Don't have an unhealthy concern for your own well-being. Look out for others. That's an act of choice. Don't wait for it to come around, but actively look for the interests of others. Verse 4 goes against human nature. Okay, even from, even from infancy, we are self-centered people. That's why infants cry, I want something. Have you ever had an infant say to you, oh, so how are you doing today? No, I want something, I want more Cheerios, or something like that. So even from infancy, it goes against how we are naturally inclined to be thinking of others. Over 100 years ago, in fact, in the year 1900, um, the Chicago River flows through the loop, 
it was, it was worse then than it is now. It was, it was just this, this layer of muck and garbage. It smelled horrible because of all the, the stuff that's being dumped into it. And it was flowing directly into Lake Michigan. That was the city's, and still is, drinking water. They said, we've got to do something. So the Sanitary District of Chicago took on the monumental task of redirecting the flow of the river so that it flowed away from the lake and into the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. Later was deemed the civil engineering monument of the millennium, recognized on a national level. level. Not just damming up a river, but actually reversing the flow perhaps even more significant than this engineering marvel, is for individuals, you and me, to change our natural inclination towards self and begin as a pattern looking for the interest in others. Sounds impossible, but it is possible. It's a directive from God. He wouldn't tell us to do something and set us up for something that's impossible. The elephant in the room is unpleasant to talk about. On our own, attempting to fix it, the self-ego, it, it can lead to discouragement. It can, it can even lead to a bigger ego and ultimately failure. But there is a way of addressing it. And it's not just stop being proud. Just try harder. You know how good, you know how that's going to work. And think about it. Just, just stop thinking. I tell you to stop thinking about something. Of course you're going to think about it. I stop, tell you to stop being proud just like it would for me. It doesn't help. Paul knows that. So that's why he writes verses 5 through 11. It means taking our eyes off ourselves and looking to the supreme example of humility, Jesus Christ. The spread of the gospel is based on relationship, revealed in unity, motivated by humility, in verses 5 through 11, it's illustrated by Christ's humanity. This is a beautiful piece of prose. This is one of the core passages of Scripture I love to read over and over again. It even translates well into English. Paul busts out some heavy theological truths. We don't have time to look at them all. But he does it for the purpose of illustrating the humility that we are to have. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Right away, he sets the bar high. This is what was in Christ Jesus. And it has returned the significance of the mind. Third time in these few verses, that word has popped up. We, by virtue of the fact we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can be consumed with the mindset of a humble Christ rather than the mindset of self, a self-centered pattern of living. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited. NIV says, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't feel the need to hold on to his own privileges. He willingly gave them up. Verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The word form comes up twice, verse 6 and verse 7, and that is significant. It's the very same word. He was in the form of God, and this act of incarnation, he takes on the form of, the ser- of a servant. Not just any man, but the form of a servant. He is still fully God, 
And yet this change, as an example to us, he takes on the form of a servant, a human being. He gave up his divine privileges. He did not cease being God so he could become man. He took on the form, again, of not just any man, but the form of a bondservant. Uh, He writes about this, Paul writes about this in his letter to the Corinthians. Context was as far as giving and, and, and earthly wealth. 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might, became, might become rich. Verse 8, And being found in human form, or his appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It wasn't just that he became a man and that he lived a very humble life, born in a feeding trough in a barn, lived a very humble life, walked the earth. Not just that, but he was God himself. He was at the creation. And he came to be in the form of one of us. And not only that, Okay, this is, this is like layers, okay? Something that, that, when you think of example, this is the supreme example. I don't think, you can't get any better than this. Not only that, he suffered unjustly at the hands of these humans that he had created. He did not deserve to be put to death. And the Romans, their form of capital punishment, a lot of the things the Romans did were very efficient. That was their mindset. Get it done, move on. That was, you know, the, the, uh, the whole Roman system was that way. For crucifixion, uh, for um, capital punishment, they wanted to set an example. This was crime deterrent back then. Strip him naked, nail him up to a cross, put him up in public where everybody can see him, and let him die for hours. Painful, painful death. That's what Jesus did. And he, he stepped away from heaven to do that, and he did it for you and me. That's amazing. That is amazing. And this is, the, this is Paul's whole point here. He says, look at this. You want to talk about humility? I'll tell you about humility. This is what God did. Sent his own son Jesus to do this for us. That's the humility that we, that we can look at. Therefore, God has exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For this reason, therefore, because of Christ willingly giving up his place in heaven, God granted him the name above every name. Paul is either quoting or at least referencing a passage from Isaiah that probably is familiar to any Jew who is there listening. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 and 23, Paul is speaking through Isaiah to the people of Israel. He's saying this, I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Do you get that? This is God himself speaking, and now this is what Paul is writing about Jesus. That's God. Verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' ultimate goal was to draw attention to and glorify his Father. That's true humility. So much of what we do just by human nature is to draw attention to ourselves in some way. 
it was hard to pass up the opportunity to dig into. There's so much rich theology in these few verses. Uh, we could spend weeks just looking at those. But remember the context. This is why Paul wrote verses 5 through 11 to challenge the believers there with the ultimate example of humility. Not to beat them up or scold them for being proud. That doesn't get anywhere. But to say, look, we have an example. Feast on that. Humility will follow. I believe that if in the church at Philippi, as in any church today, the members consistently lived out this disposition of humility, our unity would be evident to all and the gospel would be clearly proclaimed and God would be glorified. Often, as we approach life or even we approach a passage from Scripture, we have the unspoken question, what's my return on the investment? If I do this humility thing, what's in it for me? If I go through the process of putting self to the side, I want something out of it. Can I encourage you today, if you're thinking that, just stop and consider the glory of God? In the end, when we bow at his feet, what we have to offer our Lord and Savior depends on not only on what we do here on earth, but how and why. Some will offer the gold and silver and precious stones of 1 Corinthians 3. Others who have conducted their lives with self at the center will be empty-handed, have nothing. Whatever I did, I did for myself. See, if we're thinking return on investment, we miss the point. It's evidence we don't know our maker very well. As we encounter God through a disciplined study of his word, through fellowship with other believers, through prayer, for act, through active service, we begin to deepen our relationship with him and realize that's what matters. Christ's humility is our example, setting aside privilege and suffering the injustice of the cross for us. This past month, a drama was played out in national media. Court case of George Zimmerman on trial for the shooting death of Trayvon Martin. One fact is clear. None of us here were there. We can't recount with absolute certainty the precise sequence of events, nor can we fully and accurately know the motives of those two individuals at that moment and in that time. But the tragedy and the racially charged uproar that followed reveals an ugliness that exists and the wide disparity of views even within evangelical Christianity. And too often, it's complicated even more by the inability or outright refusal of some to even take a moment to consider the perspective of others. This is a sensitive issue, and I know that. But I really strongly feel that the church especially needs to speak out on issues like this. We cannot be silent. And not just throwing some opinions out there, but saying, look at this mess. What does God's word have to say about it? And it's not contriving and trying to find something, pull something out, twist it around so that it fits my opinion. It's just simply looking at God's word and saying, this is what God says. And there's no question we live in a sinful world. 
We see injustice around us all the time. We, some here, have suffered injustice. Some here, get this, have been the perpetrators of injustice. And we all can relate. We all can understand that part of it. We tend to judge others. That is wrong. And we tend to want our version of the world as it should be. But too often we draw that version apart from Scripture. We cannot do that. We must stay true to Scripture. We look at what we perceive to be injustice. And we say it's wrong. Some, many would say that that trial was injustice for Trayvon Martin. And they may be right. But let me tell you something. We put our faith in a court system that's created by man. We can't do that. No matter how well designed a court system is, it's still created by man. It is still subject to failure. And it may be failed in that case. But we can't put our faith in that. We have to say there is something that's eternal. And that is God's way of looking at things. And if we invest our minds, remember we talked about this, our mindset, if we just invest our minds into all the stuff that goes wrong, and my goodness, I have, it's been years since I've seen that much written on just one trial. There's so much that's out there. But we have got to stay rooted in God's Word. To read all of that, yes, but to stay rooted and see what God's Word has to say about it. Scripture speaks out clearly against injustice. Read the book of Amos. You'll see what God's heart is regarding injustice. It also speaks, about, speaks out about suffering injustice. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's our role. Entrust ourselves to God Almighty, knowing full well that we ourselves may be victims of injustice. We ourselves, perhaps you're even uh, the privileged ones. But either way, looking to him, and trusting ourselves to him who judges justly. This is the message of Philippians 2. Whether we're on the receiving end of injustice or whether we're the privileged class, the message is the same. Look to Jesus as the example. He stepped away from privilege. You know, you get that? A lot of us don't think that we are. But we are. He stepped away from privilege so that he could love us. So that us, us, us people, you know, we're not lovable. We're not. But he stepped away so that he could love us and gave his life for us. Not only that, he took the form of a servant and he suffered unjustly. He did not deserve anything, any punishment. He died for us. If anything is going to affect the spread of the gospel... It will be the faithful, rightly motivated actions of those who claim the name of Jesus. Their humble, selfless, Christ-like attitudes are powerful testimonies. Not to draw attention in any way to themselves, but leave people thinking, Wow, 
I want to join in following Jesus too. That's how God would have us spread his good news of the gospel of Christ. Would you bow in prayer with me? Our God and Father in heaven, to understand, to comprehend, we need you. And as you draw us closer to yourself, Lord, one thing we realize, there's a lot of us that needs to be put aside so that we can understand you and how you want us to relate to others in this world. It's our prayer that you would do that. Help us to understand that. Draw us to your word. Draw us towards one another. Draw us toward prayer so that we can have an understanding of how it is, how you would have us to behave. How would you have us to act? What is our mindset? We want it to honor you. We commit ourselves to doing just that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've come today with a concern.